0: Good afternoon or good morning in Texas, and welcome to the latest edition of Lunchtime Learnings. I'm absolutely delighted and honored to be joined today by Jeff West. Um, Jeff has been in sales for 30 years. I want to be polite, but experienced, experienced, and has, <laughs> and has coached and led sales team in multiple industries and was among the top sales performers and leaders in the nation. Um, you've written, I know, a couple of great books um, that I'd like to discuss with you today. So, the latest one um, was a said the lady with a blue hair. So, seven rules for success in direct sales. Um, and also, an award winning author of The Unexpected Tour Guide and i know you're working with plenty of other people all top secret so i can't even ask you um to write some more stories which is exceptionally exciting so thank you so much for joining me um from texas this morning i think it's about eight o'clock in the morning your time so thank you thank you for getting out of bed so early i'm sure yeah
1: <laughs> my which pleasure thank fun. you so much for asking me to be here
0: <laughs> so um just wanted to uh, First of all, maybe share your journey, um, if you'd be kind enough to do that. Um, And then obviously you've come across loads of exceptional um, salespeople out there. And I just wanted to know from you what you feel is the common denominator with um, the top performers, please.
1: Sure. I'd be glad to. Thank you for the question. Uh, My personal story, I actually originally planned to be a teacher. I, I have a bachelor's degree in music education and a master's in music composition and I laugh and tell everyone that those two degrees and a $6 in my pocket will get me a cup of coffee at Starbucks now. So it worked out real well, but uh, I ended up going into sales. I always say, uh, by default or by accident, but truthfully, I think it was divine intervention in my part. Uh, my, I had gotten married and my wife needed to finish up her degree. So I needed to work while she did that. There weren't any teaching jobs around that area. So, I got a job in sales in the first year. I made 50% more than I would have made teaching. And so I just stayed in that area. I couldn't justify the pay cut. Uh, We began to have a family and my wife and my children uh, picked up this nasty habit. They wanted to eat and live indoors and have electricity. What's that all about? (laughs) So (laughs) so I stayed uh, stayed in sales. I I did uh, four years, I think it was, in the musical instrument industry. Uh, and I did well there. I got promoted to, the second year, got promoted to be the general manager of their operation in the state of Georgia. And then uh, I was in the industrial uniform industry for, I think it was seven years, so close to that. I'd have to go back and look at the calendar. And then that trek, I started off in sales and uh, began to, uh, within, uh, within about two years, uh, I was the number one salesman in the nation with that company. And, uh, and then everybody started performing higher because once you break a, a record, then everybody starts to realize, Hey, this can be done. And so it helped a lot there. And, but the, uh, the final career that I had in sales uh, was in the insurance industry in the States. Uh, there's a major insurance brand, uh, fortune 500 co- company in the States called Aflac. And I started with them and with Aflac, I was not an employee. I was actually an independent contractor. And so it was a commission only position first time I'd ever done that without a safety net. And so it was really out of my comfort zone, but I went after that. Uh, I did well, uh, within, uh, I guess about, Oh, I guess I'd been doing that about seven years, six or seven years. No, I take it back. It was eight now, eight years. And a mentor gave me two books. You'll appreciate this because of one of your previous guests, a mentor gave me two books in January of 2000. Uh, The first was John Maxwell's 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And the second one was Bob Berg's book called Endless Referrals. Excuse me. And those two books literally changed the direction of my life. Uh, I, I I, I didn't just read the books. I read the books. I dug in there and I made some choices about how to make it work in my industry. And then I put it to practice doing that changed my life. At that point I had been a district sales manager with Aflac for 8 years and I would hit my numbers one year, miss them one year. Uh, but that year we took off. And I was, it was a, a first year I had uh, the first year for a million dollar district and that was a big deal because Aflac policies are very inexpensive. And then we had a 30% increase after that. Then I became a regional sales coordinator and I did that for two years. And then the last 10 years of my career, I was a state manager uh, in the Houston, Texas, Gulf Coast area of Texas. And in most states in the United States with IFLAC, uh, the title state sales coordinator made sense because there was one in the state. Texas is kind of big. <laughs> and so we had eight, <laughs> we, so, but I was one of the eight. And I uh, did that for 10 years. Uh, When I decided it was time to retire from that industry, uh, our mutual friend and acquaintance, Bob Berg, uh, had become a friend of mine over the years. And I got his opinion about some things. I had just written the Unexpected Tour Guide, but I had not sent it out to anyone yet. And I sent it to him and his compliments and comments were extremely encouraging, which is the kind of person he is. And I'm glad you had him on your show. Your audience should follow everything he does. Uh, But... And uh, then I began speaking and writing, and I've written multiple books. The two that I'm the most proud of is The Unexpected Tour Guide and then the newest one, Said the Lady with the Blue Hair. We'll talk more about those later if you'd like. But they were both award-winning books, got a lot of uh, big-time recognition. I uh, even hit the bestseller list on Said the Lady with the Blue Hair. So, um, And so now I, I teach people concepts. I write books. I'm in a happy place in my life is the best way to say it
0: fantastic brilliant and I think you covered everything I wanted to cover there by breaking it down so you talked about coming out of your comfort zone you talked about having a mentor um you talked about actually getting to become a number one salesman so I'm just going to piggyback on um on all those things and and just start with you know I want you to know what it takes to be a top performer but actually you were a top performer and you rose to become number one sales salesperson so how how did you do that and what the qualities that you thought um worked well for you to get to where you became
1: what a great question uh the in my case becoming a top salesperson in the industrial uniform industry was uh it was almost um I don't know. It was a a combination of things. I had been given some great books on sales. And so I knew how sales was supposed to work. I knew how the numbers would work. I was understanding a bit about the psychology of sales. So I had studied. And so when I was in the industrial uniform area arena, I actually worked with a company and for that company, the way their compensation program was set up was you made a higher commission percentage if your sales were higher. And they didn't have anybody who thought they could do it. It wasn't a great sales team at that point. And I said, guys, it's a numbers game. Let's go to work and, and do what we need to do. And then the next thing you know, I was carrying a bigger average than, than what they thought they could do. And then all of a sudden they said, well, heck, if you can do it, I could do it. And we all started doing that. And then uh, it got so big. The last quarter that I was in sales with them, they were flying me and another guy around the nation to go sell in other places because it was a very... Uh, high investment industry. When you made a sale, it, it cost the company a lot of money to get it set up, but then they would get their money back. And they said, your branch can't afford it anymore. We're sending you everywhere. But the biggest thing for me was, was being able to get, get myself into the mentality that I knew how many calls it would take. And it didn't matter if I enjoyed making the calls. It didn't matter if my stomach was in knots when I walked in the door, all of the things that we all deal with at times and sales, None of that mattered. It was a matter of making the activity happen. And I wasn't committed to being number one in the nation. I was committed to making my activity happen. And then as my skill set grew, which it will if you do enough activity and you're learning, then I began to understand how people think. Because quite frankly, the biggest thing when you walk in a door uh, or you make a first initial contact with a potential prospect, the biggest thing they're looking for has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with them. You know, I, When I'm coaching groups now and, and about sales leadership and the, their sales process, I tell them, I'll ask them all, and it's a loaded question and I, and I apologize after I do it, but I ask them all the same question. And it's, what do you think a value proposition is? And they'll tell me what their company says their value proposition is. Well, we do this, we do that, we do this, we do that. And when they're through, I say, none of that's your value proposition. And they all look at me like, They've got a deer in the headlight look, but I tell them your value proposition has nothing to do with you. The reason people buy your goods or services is has everything to do with how it makes their life better. And it has absolutely nothing to do with you, nothing to do with how great your company is. And I'm sure you and your company are wonderful, but it has everything to do with how their life improves when you do that. It's basically, it's it's, it's not the value the value proposition is not yours. It's theirs, it's their value from your proposition and that's where to focus. And somehow I learned that instinctually. I didn't verbalize it in such a way until after I had experience and time and research in there, but that's exactly what happens. It's when you focus on their value from your proposition and you're a nice person, and you set some things in motion. I call it fusion points with how I do it. But when you set some things in motion, they want to take the next step with you. They like you, they, and they begin to know you like you and trust you. And that's what you're looking for.
0: Okay. So coming back there, um, couple things mindset. So you've obviously got, and the top performers have got this growth mindset rather than this fixed mindset. So again, how do you, how do you, get that growth mindset is it something you're born with is something that you can learn or is it um or you just are you you just you know you just like it you just have it i mean you know i think carol dweck wrote a great book i don't know if you've read it about growth mindset um which which is exceptional but i see far too many people have got this fixed mindset and um they won't let go of it
1: you know you hit the nail on the head and, and i know you, you were telling me your primary audience is real estate and it doesn't matter what the industry is you have to have an abundance mindset and i don't necessarily think that's something you're born with because i don't think it would have applied to me that i didn't have that early on uh, an abundance mindset basically meaning that everything out there can make your business grow there's there are prospects out there and as, as the economy changes goes up or down if you're doing the right things and building your uh, business the right way you'll offset that but uh, as far as whether it's a an innate thing with me or a learned skill it was in my case it was a definite learned skill that's ex- i didn't i didn't have that abundance mindset i grew up in uh, a lifestyle that would be best described as very non-affluent Tell <laughs> tell people what my, i wasn't poor my mother was poor she just took me with her everywhere but uh, it's uh, it's something I had to learn, and so I, and how I learned it, I got around other people who had that abundance mindset, and that alone was a huge part of it. Uh, Charlie tremendous Jones says, "You're going to be the same person five years from now that you are today, with the exception of the books you read, the recordings you hear, and the people with whom you associate." And so, by associating with people that had that abundance mindset. Then it gave me the opportunity to absorb uh, what they were saying, how they were looking at life, how they were doing different things. And so that was a huge thing for me. Plus, I read a lot of books that helped me gain things. And when I read a book, there are times when I read a book strictly for the pleasure of doing it. Uh, but there are times where I read a book because I'm trying to get every little morsel out of it to apply whatever I'm doing at the time. And so that uh, I, I guess those two things are the best answer for your question. That I think, of. but I, I think just like in most things in life, I think just about everything is a skill—people uh, skills, mindset, uh, your even anything that you're doing in your business—it's almost always a skill, and all skills can be taught and can be learned if someone wants to.
0: But you talked about the two books, "Over Twenty-One Laws of Leadership," and you talked about the referral book from Bob. Um but what was what is interesting is you took action and you implemented it. And one of the things that I see far too much is people will read a book, um, and it's this comes back to are you a self-developer or a shelf developer? So you know, the self-developers will want to take action and implement it. The shelf developers it just goes back on the bookshelf, governs stuff and never get seen again. Right. Um so what you know again how can people watching this listening to this um you know how do they take action how do they implement it and i mean you talked about something previously about getting out of your comfort zone you know how do you get out of your comfort zone because it's very easy to just keep on doing stay in that same lane don't change the lane
1: you know that's a great question and your points right on the money Uh, when when someone's trying to get out of their comfort zone What they're really trying to do is do something that overcomes that uneasiness they'll have inside themselves when they start doing something that they haven't done before, or maybe they start doing something that is somehow triggering some emotional responses. You know, the way our neurology is set up in our body, everything we do uh, is a common, every decision we make, everything about that's kind of a combination of logic and emotion and the emotional equation What happens inside us is everything that we do, it seems like will generate some sort of an emotional context in our brain, but then it starts manifesting itself inside our body. And when it does that, it's one of those things that if we like the way it feels, we keep going. It's very easy to get someone out of their normal pattern if you're having them do something that creates a positive emotional response in them. Because that, that emotional neurology that goes on it creates a somatic marker inside our body. And we link that feeling that, that, that physiological feeling to what's going on at the time. So if we're asking someone, okay, you've not done this before, but I want you to do this. And as they do it, it creates a good context like that. It's easy for them to keep going. But on the other side of the equation and what makes it hard for some people to get out of that comfort zone is when it's kind of a negative emotion. Maybe it it, it, it brings up fear or it brings up uh, uh loneliness or, or isolation those kind of feelings the the physiological response that we have to that it's not very comfortable it's something that we don't like to do and the neurology of our brain makes us want to back away from that and that's where people get stuck in their comfort zone and I think the fact that the term became comfort zone out of all of that is is absolutely really brilliant in some ways because it's a versus comfortable feeling inside us versus an uncomfortable feeling. And how you get past that, if it's something you've chosen to do and it's a worthwhile cause that you're doing, uh, that you're going after, then when you have that feeling, you learn to separate, okay, the logic of what's going on with that feeling. That feeling that keeps them out of their comforts or makes them uncomfortable, many times is linked to activities that have happened way earlier in their life. It's our childhood, it's other experiences that we've had. So when we get that and we want to back away, we just realize, okay, that's not what's happening here. That I, what's happening here is I'm about to go in and make a sales call or I'm about to call someone about uh, listing their home. And it's, it's, it's logical. They need this. So this feeling that I have, that's about something else. Cause I haven't even talked to this person yet. And I always tell people sales call reluctance is actually an imaginary. Uh, it is a physiological response to an imagined event. The event hasn't even happened yet, but your body's reacting like it's already happened. And so when you learn to separate that, then you can move out of your comfort zone. So if, if you'll set goals, goals themselves tend to motivate most people. You set the goal, you set the activity level, and then you focus on going to do each activity level. And every time that little feeling happens where it's not in your comfort zone, you just remind yourself, that has nothing to do with what I'm about to try. Because I've never even met this person. They be, may be the nicest person I've ever worked with in my life. I, this might be the biggest uh, sale I've ever made in my life. So you can't, that, that's the easiest, that's the easiest answer for me. And that's how I get out of my comfort zone. That's how I conquer it when I have that feeling and I need to get out of my comfort zone. So.
0: Thank you. And I like what you said earlier about actually that one more call when you're doing the activity as mm-hmm. well. Um, but Again, we get rejected a lot when we make these calls. Sure. Um, So how do you deal with, well, I call it not yet. Um, A lot of people will call it no. So um, you know, how does a good salesperson overcome rejection?
1: I'll tell you exactly how I did it. I read a book, as a matter of fact, it was my first book on sales that I had ever read in my life. It was given to me by one of my life mentors, a gentleman named Jack Amberson who uh, lives in the state of Alabama. And he gave me a book and it was written by a gentleman named Frank Betcher. It's spelled B-E-T-G-E-R, but the name is pronounced Betcher. And it's an old book. Now that the terminology is wrong, everything, well, not wrong, but outdated, I guess. But in that book, it's called how I raised myself from failure to success in selling. And one of the things that that book taught, And that I understood, which is what helped me become successful, actually, in the uh, uniform industry as well, was how to calculate the calls you need. And it was basically not going through an entire exercise here, but if you calculate, if you keep up with your calls, so you know how many people you had to contact to have someone say, yes, I'll listen to what you have to say. And then how many people who listen to what you have to say, you have to go through that process to get them to say, yes, I'll do this with you. Thank you. And then you calculate your income from that, from the sale that you made, if you, if you'll track your averages a little bit, you'll begin to see a pattern. And in my case, in in the industrial uniform industry, I remember it exactly. I knew based on the number of calls that I would have to make to get an employer presentation or a presentation to the owner of the company and how many of those presentations I needed to make in order to get a sale what my average commission was, I knew that I made $23 when I divided that average commission out by the number of calls it took to get there. I knew that I made $23 every time I walked in the door, whether they said yes, whether they said no, it didn't matter because I began to look at it as I wasn't paid to, it didn't matter if they said yes or no, I wasn't paid to do that. I was paid to make enough activity happen so that I found where the yes was in the first place because the yes was already waiting on me. I just hadn't found it yet and so i what i would do mentally if they said yes i would say great thank you for the 23 dollars." so i didn't get super excited oh yes someone's going to just let me talk to them i didn't do that if they said no i didn't get really down because i still made 23 dollars per call and i'll never forget one time i was in the atlanta georgia market and you're, we're talking 30 years ago now so the it, it, when i was in the insurance industry the the amount of, of income per call was a lot higher <laughs> So, but the uh, when I walked into a place one Monday morning, it was so funny, and I had no longer gotten the name, my name and my company name and my card like this to the receptionist, and the owner was standing behind the receptionist. And this again was the industrial uniform industry, and it has kind of a sordid past if you want to look at it that way. And uh, he began to go off on me. He began to swear. He began to say all kinds of things and he said, "I don't know anything about your company. I don't know you, but." The, the laundry industry, is it's it's controlled by the mafia. I mean, he went off on me and was using a lot of words that I won't say in front of your audience. And I looked at him and I began to smile. <laughs> and he stopped in mid-sentence. I guess I was doing like I'm doing now because I'm smiling now. But he stopped mid-sentence. And he said, boy, how can you be smiling after the chewing I just gave you? <laughs> and I started laughing. <laughs> I said, well, and I, just, I said, my boss told me that I needed to run into at least one of you a week or I wasn't working hard enough and he started laughing. I said, look, actually, I just made $23 whether you said yes or no. He said, what do you mean you just made $23 whether I said yes or no? And I explained the concept to him and he said, I need to have you come in and talk to my salespeople. And I started laughing and I said, for a fee? (laughs) I didn't know 30 years later, that's exactly what I would do for a living is talk to salespeople.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Look, you you mentioned about value proposition. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, how how do people go out and demonstrate their value? Um, How can people add value, especially, well, actually it should be for me, I see too many estate agents in the UK see it as a one-off transaction. Whereas for me, it's all about being relationship building and building that client for life and giving that value proposition so that they want to recommend me to their friends, their family, their colleagues, their neighbors. Uh, But how do people get to understand what their value proposition is?
1: The easiest way is to keep asking one question. And then once you have an answer, ask it again to try to go deeper. And that is how is my prospect or how is my customer's life going to be better if they do business with me? What's going to improve in their life? You know, your audience is primary in real estate. How are the people going to to how is their life going to be better? If you help them find that home, they raise their family, they, they have their world, and that home becomes a center of that. And when you help them find that right place, you're improving their whole world. And so in your prospecting efforts and in your business efforts, you focus on that. And then when you feel like you have that value proposition really well, then just ask yourself one more question. Well, what does that really mean to them? and just keep going deeper and what you'll do is you'll start to discover hey i've changed these people's lives when 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 i can help them find the right place their life gets better and i was a part of that process like when i was in the the insurance industry i actually told people i said you know you think about what we do the company that i worked with was a company that basically these were uh, supplemental policies on top of their regular insurance. And so when they had situations going on, our company wasn't paying the doctor or the hospital. Our company was giving money to the policyholder. So it was money they could use to to fund their life while they couldn't work, while they were sick or hurt, et cetera. And I said, you get paid to make people still be able to make their house payments. You you, you help them in doing that. You connect them with Aflac, and then you're standing in the middle and you get compensated for that. And so that was kind of how I kept approaching it at a higher level. And you get something extremely important with your comment a second ago. You were talking about how you didn't look at it as a one-off transaction. That is the way, regardless of industry. Well, I take it back. There's one industry that this may not work. And that's if you're selling burial plots. Okay, one-offs may be all you get on that one. But, <laughs> but anything else, real estate, insurance, uh, seminars, um, Books, whatever. Look at it as I want this relationship for life. I want to be the first person who not only is top of mind, but also as uh, 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 Grant Mueller, a friend of mine, says, I want to be top of heart. I want to be the first person they think of. I want them to like me. I want them to know me. I want them to trust me. And then I want to keep in contact with them so that if they ever need anything in that arena, I am the first person person they think of i call that creating a fusion point and there's a, a way structurally that i teach to do that, that i don't know that we'll have time to go through today but the it's important to understand the point you just made is one of the biggest things your audience needs to take away from this they need to understand this i'm not going for a one-off i'm going to keep that relationship going with that person for their entire life i don't want to be um In the United States, we call it a realtor. You said, I think you said a state agent there. I don't want to be that one time. I want to be the only one they have for the rest of their life. And then you keep that relationship going because the relationship itself, their value they get above and beyond the transaction is that constant value from you that you're doing things that are helpful to them. It may be that you're sending them something that they need article wise. But that just has to do with home ownership in general or anything that you can help them with. One of the things I did that I learned from Bob Berg and endless referrals was the, the process that he teaches in that book about networking is quit trying to give out your card, do your elevator speech, try to find out how you can connect different people. And he would focus on connecting different people in the group with each other. And then he became, he became known as that connector and he began to get a lot of referrals back because of it. I took that process and I embedded it into my insurance career when I was still out in the field making calls and doing all of that. And I actually, I remember the first time I did it, I had an appointment set up with the owner of a company. It was in Dallas, Texas. It was a mortgage company. And he had been my account for a while. And I went in to visit with him. I told him, I said, I, I called ahead of time and said, I need to get about 20 minutes with you if that's okay. And he said, sure. So when I got into his office, uh, Steve, and I sat down in front of him, In front of him at his desk and i said look i want to thank you he said why and i said well i make my living by doing what i do and you're one of my clients your employees are participating in what i do you're actually helping me feed my family you're not just doing some business with an insurance company you're helping me personally and i want to thank you for that And, and i said i'd like to go one step further i'd like to return that favor so, and I said, I meet a lot of people in the, out there when I'm making sales calls, and I have a lot of clients. What's the one question, or give me a couple of questions that I need to be asking them to know if they're a good prospect for me to send to you. And I just stopped talking and he 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 took off his glasses. I'll always remember this. He took off his glasses and he said, got to tell you something before I answer your question. I said, what? And he said, thank you. And I said, well, you're welcome, but..." What, what are you talking about he said i've been in business 30 years i've had salespeople ask me for referrals all the time you're the first person ever that's in sales who's ever come and asked me how you could refer business to me thank you and it was a huge bonding moment a huge fusion point point. and then uh, he told me a couple of things i literally picked up my phone while i was there sitting in front of him and i said hang on just a second and i called somebody And it was somebody that I already had a couple of my clients that I thought would be good referrals to send his way. So I called uh, one of them and I said, hey, I've got another client. He's in the mortgage industry. Uh, He's been doing it a long time. He's doing something a little bit unique right now. I know him, I like him, and I trust him, and I would like to connect you two. Would that be okay? And the guy said, sure. So then when I hung up, I gave him the contact information. So I actually proactively gave him a referral while we sat there. And so he and I began to refer business back and forth. We began to put a little network together. So that's a value that cost me nothing. And I provided above and beyond the transaction. And it turns out, as Bob teaches in in Endless Referrals and in the Go-Giver book, uh, it brought extra value to the table for him. But it also paid off for me because the way I got compensated from the referrals that I earned there are huge. And so it's just a a mindset. always going in some way, some form or fashion to provide value above that transaction and keep that relationship going for life.
0: Brilliant. There is absolute gold there. So thank you so much for sharing it. I'm really, I'm really conscious of time and I do want to speak about your books. Um, so I don't know how much, I don't know how much longer we've got. Um, but said the lady with the blue hair, um, it's a story of Kay, a young widow, trying to figure out um, how she's going to go forward um, with her daughter after their devastating loss. Um, and she meets a lady with blue hair called Belle. And Belle gives her, I think it's seven life lessons, seven successes. Right. Uh, so obviously we want to keep something back. Um, but um, one of them was about being... <laughs> Being naughty, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, so, I wish I
1: said it as, I wish I had the same accent as you when I say that, because it, I love that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um, I don't know how much you want to share, but, you know, obviously there's seven successes. Um, <laughs> please, you know, share about the, you know, a okay. couple of the lessons about the book that will help people.
1: I'll be glad to. And uh, I get to my co-author on said the lady with the blue hair, Personally, let me back up. My first book was The Unexpected Tour Guide, and it uh, won an, an award. Got I got to go to New York City for the recognition and that kind of thing. So that was nice. Sold a lot of copies. But my uh, second book I actually co-authored with a lady named Lisa Wilbur. And Lisa is Avon, uh, the cosmetic, not cosmetic, they do all kinds of things. But she is Avon's fifth highest earner in history. She has about wow. 5,000 people on her sales team. I refer to her as a direct sales legend when I talk about her. But she actually, when uh, we first met, was on a, a Go-Giver Success Alliance Zoom call with Bob Berg. And she had blue hair as we were uh, in the meeting. And uh, she was, th- I don't remember the reason she had dyed it blue at the first place, but she felt a little intimidated. So she, when it was her time to talk on the Zoom call, she started telling her stories about it. If you want to be less judgmental in your life, dye your hair blue. And she said, this is working for me. I, I can uh, be in a grocery store and I can see a lady whose skirt's a little too tight. And I could think, wow, that lady's skirt's too tight, said the lady with the blue hair. And, this, and I thought it was hilarious. So that day I sent her a little message in the chat and I said, that would make a great book title. Well, we never approached doing that. I changed my business model about a year later to where I was looking for co-authorships, kind of like what Bob Berg and John David Mann did with The Go-Giver. So Lisa and I connected on that. And so the seven rules for success are things that this woman has been teaching her sales team for 30, 40 years. That's one of the reasons she is so huge at what she does. And they're strong lessons. So the the story is wonderful. It's I write business fables, business parables, both the unexpected tour guide and said the lady with the blue hair are stories that are strong enough that your audience will love reading them just because they're good stories. But then we teach things and we sneak things into them. But my, two of my rules that I would say uh, of the seven rules of success that we put in the book, uh, I, I'm going to stick with the ones that I think are the funniest today. Uh, there, there are some great books and every entrepreneur will do well to read these books and learn the information, uh, doesn't matter what branch of sales or entrepreneurship you're in. But uh, Lisa's favorite rule in the book is the naughty rule. Or as you say, the naughty rule, I love that, gosh. But uh, the naughty rule basically says, if you don't get in trouble every now and then, you're probably not trying hard enough. And it was about innovation and it was about trying to, to do things, take what's there, learn from it, be, be uh, oh, have the right mindset about what you've already learned, but don't be afraid to step out of, your, of the comfort zone of what you're already good at to get better and to innovate and come up with new things that you can do, new ways to create value. And if that gets you in trouble a little bit, sometimes in a direct sales fashion, then okay, then apologize and, and move forward. But so that was her favorite role. And it so describes Lisa. She's kind of known for doing that. And that's one of the reasons her organization is so large. And, uh, I don't know whether I should tell my favorite rule or not. Let me ask you a question. Is your audience ready for something if it's just slightly off
0: balance? Why not? Anything that can help and add value and make a difference. It's good to be different.
1: (laughs) Well, there's a rule in the book called the miniskirt rule. And uh, the rule is addressing those salespeople, basically, who who talk too much. They go on too much about their product or their service or they – talk too much and the client's already not, or potential client is not with them anymore. They've lost them, but they keep on going and they take forever. (laughs) And she was trying to get her group to understand that sometimes you go on too, you talk too much. And so the miniskirt rule is this, when it comes to your sales presentations, keep them like your miniskirt, make them short enough to hold people's attention, but long enough to cover the goods. (laughs) when she told me that how how we actually uh, designed the book I told her to make a list of everything that she teaches her people that we could turn into a principle and we narrowed it down to seven and when she told me that one Stephen I think I laughed for 10 minutes I couldn't stop laughing (laughs) I couldn't go and if if that offended any of your audience I so apologize but it's it's dealt with in a very g-level manner in the book and the uh, but, and the, there's one little scene in there too, where our main character, Kai gets, um, gets a guy on her sales team and, and she's shaking her head going, how am I going to teach him the mini skirt rule?
0: <laughs> Very good. Very good. A couple of other questions, if you don't mind, and then sure. I, w- I will leave you to have a lovely, um, productive, successful day in Texas. Um, so Belle was obviously, um, a mentor. Um, importance of having a mentor and having a coach?
1: Oh, I cannot stress that enough. Uh, one of the things that I did, and I don't know where I learned this, but I actually invested a lot in my career over the decades. And I quit counting when i had invested well over $50,000, but I've been doing this a long time. So it's not like someone needs to invest that much in one year, I would suppose. But the uh, the difference of mentor a coach will make in someone's life is pretty significant. And uh, in my case, I say I have, uh, I've been blessed with good mentors, actually. The first was a gentleman, I i think I mentioned earlier, and it may have been while we were behind scenes, I don't remember. It was a gentleman named Jack Amberson. And Jack was my first sales manager in the musical instrument industry. And uh, the lesson that I learned from that particular mentor, I learned sales lessons from him. But the lesson I learned the most was how to be a dad, because when I interviewed for the sales position with his company, uh, he, he said, come spend a week with me. I was actually getting my master's degree at the time. And in, in the States, we have something called spring break where you get a week off. Everybody goes on holiday pretty much at the same time. And, uh, so I went to visit with him for the week that I was on spring break. And I actually rode with him the entire week. I stayed at his home. I ate with his family. And we did and he did the job and i just rode along with him watching him do it to see if i thought i would like to do it and every morning Stephen, at whatever time we were getting up which was early we'd be in around his breakfast table drinking coffee and he had two young children and uh they were, ted i think was in the first grade and his daughter becky was a little, little bit younger every single morning those kids would run to jump up in his lap and he would he would give them a hug and he'd give them a kiss. And he said two things that I had never heard. And that this is not a dig against my parents, but I'd never heard this. He said, I love you so much. I am so proud that God picked me to be your daddy. Uh, Stephen, it changed my world. I, had, I grew up in a, um, a family that didn't express that. And I know my parents loved me. They worked, they put food on the table. They did what they needed to do, but I'd never heard that and that that one event changed the way i raised my children and it's so funny uh, i actually got permission from jack to use his character and actually his name in the unexpected tour guide and i, I write about the man he's that good of a person and he uh, he uh, i raised my children with them understanding that from the beginning and hearing it from their dad from the beginning and uh, now my children are grown and my daughters are 39 and 35 and I have grandchildren and Stephen, I've watched them do the same thing with their children. So Jack didn't just change my life and my children's life. He changed my grandchildren's life. I got a, I got an email uh, from a lady in, uh, I think it was Australia, not too long ago. And she had just read the unexpected tour guide. And actually she got the audiobook and she loved it. And she uh, had sent me a message about it. And then like two days later, I saw her make a post about her parents and she used the exact same verbiage. She said, I am so glad that God picked you two to be my parents. And so <coughs> I, I sent Jack a, a, a message about that. I said, buddy, you are not just change my life. You're changing lives everywhere now. And so that was one mentor. I had a sales mentor who was absolutely fantastic. Uh, the one who gave me the two books uh, was uh, uh, that I mentioned earlier. It was funny when he gave me those two books, I'm kind of a, I'm a little bit of a rebel. I'll be honest, Stephen. I, I, I tend to, uh, be outspoken at times to my detriment. <laughs> but he, he gave me those two books. He says, I want you to read these two books. And I said, Frank Davies, I'm a grown man. I'll decide if I read those books and I'm reading those books. <laughs> but well, He was a great sales mentor in the insurance industry. And then Bob Berg. uh, Actually, Bob Berg and John David Mann, but Bob Berg is a huge mentor to me. He's a, he's a, he's uh his mentality about what he does is exactly like the books he writes. That's not always the case with uh authors in our industry. Uh, he he teaches uh providing value above and beyond the transaction. He teaches being focused on your client. And when he does that, it's also the way he lives. And it's, uh, that's uh, knowing him behind the scenes and knowing these things. Uh, he's, he, uh, he's a huge mentor to me. And uh, John, David, man, uh, we are talking about having mentors. I actually spend, uh, I actually, John is my friend and he just opened up a sales course and it's called uh, writing mastery mentorship. I was the first person to sign up for it because I granted, if I'm going to do business with someone, I like doing business with a friend, that's great, but he's that good of a mentor to me. So I'm still spending money and getting coached and doing the things that I need to do to become better because every time I do that, my income goes up because I apply what I learn. If you're not going to apply the lessons, don't waste your time. But if you're applying the lessons, your income's probably going to improve so that the investment, return on investment is huge. Uh, By the way, uh, I mentioned the girl who got the Audible version of the Unexpected Tour Guide. If you go to Audible, I I, I guess you have Audible in the UK, uh, and get the Unexpected Tour Guide. There's a coupon in there that I put in, and it's it's kind of an audio commercial, basically. But I give you access to a course that I've been selling for years at $97, and I give it to people for free. So that's kind of my value add, my trying to do something above and beyond the transaction. And and most people, when they go on Audible, they can actually get the book If, if they're new. They get it for free they just sign up and get they get the first two f- books free anyway so it's great so, Brilliant. I guess, hopefully so, that answered um, the
0: question thank you i'm incredibly grateful for your time this morning this afternoon so thank you um how do people find you jeff
1: the easiest way is to go to jeffcwest.com j-e-f-f-c-w-e-s-t.com uh, there you can find information about the books uh, you can find information about uh, me there's also, uh, you can go to Fusion Points, points being plural, fusionpoints.com. If, you have, uh, if you're looking for someone to work with your sales team and, and help uh, help create the, the, basically the environment where your customers and your salespeople always want to take the next step with you. Um, and then I uh, have one other thing that I do, and it's where I'm co-authoring books. I now have people that will reach out to me to co-author a book with them. And so you can find information on that, uh, coauthoryourmessage.com, or you just go to jeffcwest.com and you can find everything. How's that?
0: (laughs) Brilliant. Well, look, thank you so much for your time today. I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you everybody for watching and listening, whether it's live or on replay. I'm incredibly grateful. And I wish you all a successful and productive day. So thank you very much. Jeff, thank you for your time.
1: My pleasure. I'm honored.